Okay, let's pray together as we get started. Let's pray together as we get started. Father, thank you that we can be here today and study your word. We thank you that um, in your word we have practical guidance uh, for living that was uh, important for the believers uh, when Paul wrote it, and it remains important for us today. We pray that you would help us to understand and to heed uh, the things that we study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So if you want to turn there. And this is, as we will see, a transition point in the letter. So um, Paul starts out in a new direction, um, beginning here. And we'll talk a little bit about um, how and why he's doing that. So 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. And we will read the first 12 verses. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verses 1 through 12. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what, what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger to all, in all those things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards, this uh, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So this is actually two sections that deal with two different topics. We actually could have um, divided this up and uh, dealt with each of these separately. Um, But we will, um, Lord willing, try to get through both of these uh, today. But we will give uh, most of our attention to the first paragraph and not as much to the second. So um, with that in mind, I don't want you to think that we're only going to focus on uh, Paul's instructions regarding sexual immorality and not give attention to his instructions on idleness. One of the reasons that I'm uh, moving through that second paragraph quickly is that this is the only section in these two letters where Paul deals with that first topic of sexual immorality. The sin of idleness appears to have been a greater uh, matter within this church, and so Paul actually deals with that on two other occasions, in chapter 5 and verse 14, and then in a more extended way in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And so um, if your besetting sin is idleness, don't worry, we will get to you, uh, but we will have a couple of opportunities um, after today uh, to talk about um, about that sin and 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 so forth. So um, that is the reason that we will move through the second paragraph a little bit more clearly uh, or quickly, and try to uh, get to both of these today. So Paul begins this section with the word finally, 
And that word finally has been the cause of a great many Christians making fun of the Apostle Paul, or maybe more accurately making fun of modern preachers, because the thought is, well, he says finally, and then he goes on for another uh, two or three chapters. And, and this happens in several of Paul's epistles. But in fact, um, whether or not we should defend or not defend modern preachers, I'll leave that to you. But with regard to Paul, it's understandable because actually the word finally is not one that says in conclusion or I'm finishing up. But rather the idea here is that we're, we have finished talking about the main subject of the letter and now I'm going to move on to some further things before we close. And so it's not really an indication that he's down to the very end. It's just an indication that the main portion of the letter is over with. And now he's just going to deal with some other matters that are outside the main purpose for which he was writing the letter. And so the, the primary point of the letter is what we had in the first three chapters, where Paul talks about his regret that he had had to leave, um, about his ongoing love for the church, his defense uh, of his ministry uh, against those that had continued to oppose what he had done. All of that is the main body of uh, this letter. But in chapter 3, Timothy had come back to Paul from Thessalonica with this report. And in chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul had said, um, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent, that is, he sent Timothy, to learn about your faith. And so he had sent Timothy to find out, how are things going there? Are they continuing to be faithful to the Lord? Are they continuing to meet together? Are they, uh, are, they, are they continuing on? And Timothy had come back, as is described, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 3, and had given his report. Yes, um, they are doing well. They are continuing in the faith. They are fond of you in spite of what your opponents are trying to uh, say about uh, you and your ministry and about the gospel. So, Things are well there, but along with that, Timothy's report would have included, here are some things that they are continuing to deal with. These are the things that the church continues to need further instruction on. And so it would have been based on Timothy's report that Paul deals with these other subjects that he talks about over uh, chapters 4 and 5. And so he talks about this subject of sexual immorality because that is something that they were dealing with um, at the church. Um, he talks about this subject of idleness and not being busybodies um, and because that was something that was being dealt with in the church. Um, starting at the end of chapter 4 and going into the middle of chapter 5, he gives some corrections related to the return of Christ because that was a matter of confusion. Timothy had come back and said, this is something that's going on in the church where people are confused and discouraged. And so all of these topics that Paul deals with in the last part of the epistle would have been the result of what Timothy reported back. And so Paul is not writing about these things in some sort of vacuum or, you know, well, these were just things I thought I would talk about. But rather, these are the results of the letter or of the report that Timothy had brought back. These are matters that are, are problematic or potentially problematic 
um, in the church, and therefore um, Paul writes this letter and, and uh, attempts to provide some instruction with regard to each of these matters. And so that's why, um, you know, the, the, this is scripture that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's still practical and valuable for us today because the Holy Spirit is the author that stands behind the human author of it. And so it's still relevant and practical for us today, in some ways perhaps too practical. Um, but also um, it, it was practical and meaningful and to the point for Paul's original readers because he's writing about these things because these were things that the church was actually dealing with. These were either problems or potential problems that needed to be addressed um, for the church to continue to function well. And so that's why um, these particular topics are taken up. Thoughts before we move into some of the specifics? So all of that was just one word, finally. <laughs> so anyway, um, Paul, um, so Paul launches into this. He points out that in the instructions that he's about to give, He's not just giving personal opinion. Um, notice again in verse um, 1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. And so even though these are practical matters, this should not be regarded as just personal advice. And so everything that he says about the following topics, sexual immorality, idleness, the return of Christ, um, we should not regard these as just personal opinion that we can take or leave but rather he is saying these things by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And, and by the way, this means that, and, and we'll say this especially with regard to the first matter, that if um, the church, and when I say the church, I don't mean ours individually, but the church at large, if the church wishes to regard or, or disregard or attempt to alter these uh, instructions, these commands, um, we do so not just against the advice of the Apostle Paul, but against the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There is currently, and there will be more so, we'll talk about this more later, but there is a lot of pressure on the church to change its standards, particularly with regard to sexuality. And... Um, there are, we see, some evangelical churches that are starting to capitulate um, based on that pressure. Um, it just needs to be recognized that... Now, there, there, are, there have been some teachings out of the church through the years that was culturally conditioned and maybe had more to do with Victorian values than with what's in Scripture. And so all of that can be kept in mind, but... The basic Christian understanding that sexual behavior is a matter that's between one man and one woman who are married, um, that is a biblical standard that you cannot change without defying the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so um, it's important to realize that, um, that those kinds of things are not culturally conditioned and are not subject to our... Uh, personal opinions as to what we would prefer, but rather it is uh, the count, it is the command of the Lord Jesus. So the authority of the instructions is um, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, and then <clears throat> again, 
Paul also emphasizes that what he's saying here is not brand new to him and to them. And, and you'll notice that he says throughout this passage that you've heard this from me before. And so uh, even while he had been in Thessalonica, he had recognized that, um, that these were uh, questions of Christian conduct that needed to be addressed. He had talked with them about them, but, um, but uh, he felt he believed that he had the need to uh, remind them once again of uh, their uh, Christian duty uh, with regard to these issues. But they, it was nothing new. He was not bringing some new teaching that they had never heard before. These were things that he had talked about. So that's, that's sort of the introduction to this section. Anybody want to jump in with thoughts or comments? And if not, we'll get into the meat of what he has to say here. So in, in beginning with verse 8, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, there are several things that we can notice just from that passage. The first is that he's talking to Christians. And Christians in recent decades, and maybe beyond that, but we, we Christians have given a lot of attention to this topic. And I would suggest that we've given a lot of attention to this topic, and we've been unsuccessful in the way that we've, you know, so as we've given a lot of attention to this topic, telling the culture what they ought to be doing, the culture's not improved by our counsel, but it's gotten worse. And so... Um, that I might, for those that think that the job of the church ought to be to change the culture, um, it might be a good idea to rethink the way that you've been going about that because things have changed a lot and not really for the better. So, um, so whatever your um, view of cultural transformation, uh, things have not gone particularly well. But Paul makes clear here, and by the way, there was no point in talking about transforming Thessalonica. They didn't have the ability. There weren't enough of them. So when we look back on the New Testament to to us, and, and for good reason, it's amazing how fast Christianity spread. You know, starting off with just a small group of, you know, 120 disciples in the upper room after the resurrection of Jesus right before Pentecost. So you have a very small group in a small corner of the world, and we see over the course of the book of Acts, it's spreading, our faith spreading um, all across the known world at the time. And so it's amazing to see. So it's understandable to have that perspective. But we should also keep in mind that even at the end of the New Testament and for a few hundred years afterwards, Christianity was in, remained a very small minority in that part of the world. And so the idea that um, you know, they were going to spread their teaching and transform Roman culture, it really wasn't possible given the small minority. And furthermore, um, they didn't. It, it, it didn't happen. Um, but Paul here, what he's emphasizing is not the way all the Thessalonians should act. You know, a couple hundred thousand people with a small churches in the midst of them. He's not emphasizing here how all the Thessalonians ought to be acting, but rather what he's emphasizing is in the midst of all these Thessalonians, here's how the church ought to be acting. 
it's crucial for your sanctification. It's crucial for your relationship with God. It is crucial for the growth of your Christian faith that you not behave in the same way as the culture around you. And so the focus is not the transformation of the culture. The focus is on the faithfulness of the church. And again, my, my belief, um, and, and I, I believe that this is consistent with biblical teaching and, and looking at what we're facing in our time, the crucial question in our time is not what the culture is going to look like. Most controversial thing I'll say today, the culture war has been fought and lost. The culture war has been fought and lost. And that's not, barring a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, that's not going to change for a long, long time. And if you want to question me about that, I'll explain why I think that. Culture war has been fought and lost. The question is not what the culture is going to look like. The question is, will the church capitulate? And frankly, the early returns are not looking good because many sectors of the church are addicted to being popular and being attractional. And being attractional means we're going to find out what you already want and we're going to tell you you can get that better with the church. And if that's your mode of evangelism and ministry, it is going to be really hard to remain faithful. Well, a lot of the mainstream churches, and they're not even really churches, I mean, your best life ever, that's not what we're selling here. We're selling a completely different set of hearts. We are not of the world. Not, not the best version of the world you can get. Very, and, and you're right. It's a very different mindset. Um, but what you're talking about has become what many people recognize as the dominant form of Christianity in the United States. And so um, there's a lot of pressure to conform. We talk about the sexually immoral, we're talking about you know, gay and lesbian people. The issue is, is we're not going, eradicating them isn't going to happen. They, and they exist apart from the culture. They've, you know, I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah had them. I mean, it's a thing. I feel like as a church, one of our questions is how do we treat them? I think as a church, we need to focus on how we treat them. And because, you know, I've had people that come to me and talk to me and, you know, they're gay, they're a lesbian, or they don't know what they are, and they don't want to come to church because they're afraid of what's going to happen. And they're afraid, and no sinner should be afraid to come into a church. Yeah, they, they should know that they're loved. And everybody that's interested in that particular subject, I, I cannot recommend enough um, the book that Rosaria Butterfield wrote on her own conversion. It's... Uh, uh, an unlikely convert is part of the title, but if you're interested in that subject, uh, and, and her story, if you don't know it, is, is an amazing one. She was a women's studies professor at Syracuse University. She um, um, was uh, a, a lesbian and um, wrote many of the uh, 
college um, standards for um, ways of treating people and conduct and so forth that a lot of us complain about today. So she, if you want to know who wrote them, she did it. So anyway, she, she was very much an activist, very much involved in her community, and, um, and was doing a study of Christian fundamentalism intending to write about how much it was awful. And in the midst of that, she was contacted by a Presbyterian pastor in her area who said, well, maybe we should start talking about this. Maybe we could, you know, I could correct some of your ideas and we could have some conversations. And this started a multi-year conversation that um, ultimately um, resulted in her um, conversion. And now she is um, married to a Presbyterian pastor. Um, in a denomination that largely, is, that arguably at least, is even more conservative than ours. Uh, they are, um, they only sing psalms with no, uh, they don't allow the piano. Um, and only sing um, canonical hymns, as they put it. Um, so in some ways more conservative than we are. So you talk about a dramatic conversion. But anyway, um, she she's very forthright in terms of... Um, of um, how this pastor was able to minister to her over a period of years, how she came to faith, how some Christians treated her that weren't helpful. So anyway, if you're not familiar with that book, I would, I would highly recommend it. What is it again? Um, does anybody... Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I remembered the unlikely convert part. And that's And that's important. I mean, our goal with regard to our friends and neighbors is not to get them Yeah, it's it's Yeah. And that's so important. The goal is not for them to stop having sex but stay lost. And, and so go to hell, but not, you know, uh, one way I've put it before is our goal is not to have San Francisco look like Salt Lake City. <laughs> because Salt Lake City still not where we want them to end up. They're still lost. They're a subspecies to them. Look how stupid and sad they are. And I'm like, that's one, if you call yourself a Christian and still act that way, please go read the Bible again because that's not right. And also, you're defeating your purpose. Mm-hmm. And that's very true. John? I can give a, a real-life example of that. Uh, in a previous church we attended, give me a second, a young man who followed a cute girl to church, but he didn't look like everybody else at our church. And there were a few, to their credit, of the older members, teachers, leaders of the church who embraced him and tried to do their best to make him feel welcome and included. And a lot of the others who made it very uncomfortable for him. You know, he had just external fashion 
things going on that didn't quite conform to this little old-fashioned Southern Baptist church. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to serve. He was a believer. Wanted to serve, and a lot of conflict out of that, just from the, uh, you know, the fact that the church made it clear that he was not welcome among them Hmm. by default. You know, if they weren't, they either actively talking bad about him behind his back or in front of him. Etc. It was. It really offended me. Mm-hmm. I, I was one that tried to help him feel included. There were there were lines that needed to be drawn. Some requests that were made of him in terms of if you're going to serve, then let's could you do us a favor and meet us halfway here and there. Mm-hmm. But the church as a whole, the congregation as a whole, just by their lack of what you know. We all have our blind spots, and I understand that. And I forgive them, and I love the congregation as well. But we've seriously failed in his case. And, and yeah. Helping someone who doesn't look like us, or act like us, or live like us, to become one of us. And that's a challenge we all have to deal with. Very in true. Personal lives. Very true. And Great it has, point. It has, it, has, it has real consequences. Yep. Very true. <laughs> Julie. I, well, I, just had a quick I was saying, though, the, the, the cultural, the reclaiming the culture is also something that I've heard in Reformed churches, not necessarily in reference to homosexuality, but more to that kind of classical, we must reclaim beauty and truth and goodness, but we're going to take something like a Beethoven piece and we're going to incorporate this. It, there, it's, it's a subtle, there's still a very there's a subtleness it that's very disturbing. Um, and it, it is in the Reformed. I mean, some of it's in the Old Yeah, and it's, it's a big, you know, that's a larger discussion across the Reform movement, and there's, there's a whole array of views that, um, that go across the spectrum from a full-blown transformation to an almost a cultural separatism approach. So I, I think that... It, just to try to go through all of that a little bit quickly, I think that we're, we're, we do well if we separate the Great Commission as the primary work of the church from the Great Commandment as the primary work of individual Christians. And so, with regard to our personal interests, whether it's uh, loving Beethoven's music or whether it's our political interests or whether it's uh, my love for baseball that kept me up late at, late at last night, our, um, our interactions and um, fellowship, if you will, and our engaging in those interests and encouraging others to be engaged in those interests, that's creation activity. And so, all, uh, and so the, the church should encourage one another about, to enjoy God's creation gifts and to love our neighbors in the way that we enjoy our creation gifts. Um, but that's not, in my view, the work of the church. The work of the church centers around the Great Commission which is not just evangelism, but it's making disciples. So that's, 
you asked a very complex question. I've given a, a response that's way too simple. But I, I think that I that... I exactly how to ask that question, but you, you are starting to answer it. I, I think that that is a start in the right direction. Did you have... A, I was just going to say, we should expect that the gospel will make unbelievers uncomfortable, but that should be the limit of it. I mean, to, for them to come in and feel uncomfortable is, is, a, is a failure on our part. And I think we need to own that a little bit, but that's part of our history, especially as it goes to you know, people who are you know, openly you know, gay or whatever. Um, we need to admit that in the past, we've tried to keep them out of our churches, which is exactly where they belong. Mm, yeah. And, and, and realize that that's part of the reason that we lost the cultural war is because we tried to keep them out of our churches because we didn't want weirdos in our church, which is actually where they belong to begin with. And, and that's so true. And if you think about, and this gets into the way that Christian churches have intersected um, with political movements, and this is without regard to what your particular positions and so forth are. But when the church starts engaging in politics directly, we treat people that are on the other side as though they're enemies. And at least with regard to these kinds of issues, the folks that we're talking about are not enemies, they're people that need the gospel. And so if we, if we start out by talking about people as though they are enemies, are they going to listen to us when we say, hey, you ought to come over to our church, enemy? Um, you know, there, there's, uh, there's a way of dealing with people that understands that um, the church's work properly understood. Uh, again, I'll, I'll give my own view on this. The, the, the rubric of culture war was always misguided. Um, and Michael Horton wrote this really well back around 1990 and, and had a, an influence on my thinking then. The United States is not a battlefield. It is a mission field. And with regard to people that disagree with us on any matter of the faith, not just, and, um, and, and there are dozens of other things beyond sexual issues that we could talk about, but... But if people disagree with us on um, the exclusiveness of faith in Christ as the way to heaven or any other number of other subjects, that doesn't make them enemies on a battlefield that we want to shoot. <laughs> it makes them um, it makes them people that need the gospel, and we should want to um, preach law and gospel to them in hopes that they will be saved. Other thoughts? Good discussion. Yeah. Oh, I was just thinking that, you know, um, years ago, I know there was this big movement about, you know, and, and I, lo I love classical music, but, you know, this idea that we're going to transform the culture through, you know, reinvigorating classics or classical music. And you think about someone who was really vile, like John Newton, and the impact he had. And probably I'm thinking the next... You know, John Newton is not going to be somebody that, that I like or that, you know, whose music I like is probably going to be, you know, play a rapper. <laughs> <laughs> because that's how God works. He doesn't work the way I want him to work. Works. And what will probably have, you know, the most impact in the fallen world. And, and, and there's a lot of truth to that. And, and again, um, 
my view on some of these kind of goes against, as you've indicated, the idea that the church transforms culture. I don't think that we've historically been, not in recent history at least, have not been very good at that. But if you take more of a transformational approach than I do, that's fine. But I think that we all need to think about um, um, the fact that over the last 50 years, we've really just not been very good at it. And the things that we've given the most attention to have been the areas that we've failed the most in. Um, uh, another good book that I can uh, recommend, um, um, not by a Presbyterian, you won't agree with all of it, I didn't, but James Davison Hunter is a Christian and a sociologist who wrote a book, and I said I was going to recommend it, and now I can't remember the title. It's something like To Change the World or something along those lines. And he kind of walks through his understanding of the reasons that, that the Christian right has failed in its primary objectives. And um, his solution at the end of the whole thing is what he refers to as faithful presence. That instead, that it's, it would be a mistake to withdraw from culture, he says. It would be a mistake um, to continue to try to continue doing the same things that we've been doing unsuccessfully. Um, um, his, his argument is that faithful presence in the midst of our culture is the right way to go, and, and there's a fair amount to be said for that. Other thoughts? This is good discussion. I'm not getting nearly as far as I thought I would. But don't you, but I feel that faithful presence also needs to be on the defense. Because I agree, the culture war is lost, particularly as it comes to what type of relationships are going to, that people are having. Mm -hmm. And where it's going to, as far as the church, at least what I am seeing, there are movements to say if the church does not accept these lifestyles, you're going to be punished mm -hmm. for not accepting these lifestyles. And, that, and, and you're absolutely correct that we need to um, build, the, and I think that's part of what Paul's point is here. Don't hear me saying that anything about the church's historic teaching needs to change we we need to maintain the we need to maintain biblical standards for every member of the church and we should it, uh, don't hear me saying that we should deny in public what we believe as a church we should you know our understanding of god's law does not change um but what changes is, um, is, is focus. While we, while we do not change our beliefs, um, our focus is on um, maintaining what we believe God requires of us and calling people to faith in Christ. But we don't waffle on, you know, if somebody says, well, can I come into the church and remain um, sexually promiscuous? Uh, no, that's not our standard. Uh, because then it, it's not our standard because it's what God requires of us. And it's what God requires of everybody. So we, uh, our, the teaching doesn't change, but, um, but the, the, the approach does. Yeah. Sorry, last thing. Is 
because especially as a college student, you encounter a lot of this. And one thing I've had people come up to me, and I've talked to some people who are openly gay, a couple there, one that was trained at least, and talked to them, and I, the way I framed it was, I said, my, I'm convicted that the Bible says that this is wrong, but I believe that you were made in the image of God, and therefore worthy of love and respect. I've never had a single person that was homosexual or anything like it be mad at me about that. Because I said, you know, I respect you, I'll support you. If you were to get married, would I be happy about it? No, but I wouldn't stop, say you're a disgusting, horrible human being because God still made you. You're still his creation. You're still made in his image, regardless of what you do to it. Yeah, and I, I think that that's a good approach. I, um, now, Rosaria Butterfield, again, um, makes the argument that the line has changed. And so um, she argues that the Obergefell decision, that was the decision, the Supreme Court decision that legalized gay marriage. She says that's moved the line. So whereas previously most folks would accept what, you, what you've said as, I appreciate your tolerance, that's, that means that we can be friends. The Obergefell decision says the, ball, the, the line has moved, and now if you don't go for full-scale acceptance, um, we're going to call you a bigot. So um, that, if that continues to play out, then I think that we will see more persecution. And, and frankly, you know, we've started to see, and it's not, well, we saw it with a, a Texas uh, former congressman running for president this week that said, if churches don't um, affirm gay marriage, then their tax-exempt status should be taken away. So, you know, we, we've seen that line start to change, and we need to be aware of that. Um, and that is something that would have a direct impact on, on churches. So, um, so anyway, I, I think that your, your approach is good, but I, I think that we might find that we have increased persecution in the future, even even with a tolerant um, approach. Did somebody else have, did you have your hand up? No? Okay. Oh. Um, well, I have not gotten nearly as far as I thought I would, but it's good discussion. Hopefully this has been um, helpful as we've thought through um, these things. So we'll get a little bit further, and then probably uh, the next Sunday... Um, we will um, come back to both this passage and maybe we'll go ahead and do a little bit of the busybody stuff um, as well in, in the following paragraph. Um, speaking of that, next Sunday I will not be here, so I understand from Pastor Troutman you're probably going to get some Robert Godfrey, which will be much better teaching, so uh, you can enjoy that. And then in two weeks we will um, come back and return to this passage and then the uh, week following that, we get into the fun stuff related to the uh, return of Christ. So no, I'm, I'm glad we're not dealing with any controversial subjects in this Bible study. Um, let, me, let me mention, um, just trying to uh, look at what I can get to and what I can't. Um, since we've been saying that the culture war has been lost, um, I do want to say a word or two about why I think that, um, and I think that many Christian groups are are naive in terms of what it would be required to change people's minds, and it's 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 also interesting that we've um, we've the focus has become and maybe this was my leading into it, but we focused on homosexual issues, but 
um, even a, even if you neglect, if ignore all of that, um, sexual behavior outside of marriage among heterosexuals. Um, I mean, we've seen tremendous change over the last 20 or 30 years. Over 50% of couples that get married um, live together before they get married. It's over 50% now. So that's a dramatic um, increase. And um, if, you, if you think about it, uh, increasing numbers of couples are deciding not to get married at all. And so, um, so my, my joke has been that you know, Christians are concerned about gay marriage, but part of our concern ought to be that they're the only people getting married, that nobody else um, um, seems to want to. Um, so um, big changes among, um, among heterosexual uh, behavior um, in our culture um, as well. And so we shouldn't ignore that and its impact on the church because, again, we're increasingly seeing um, folks come into the church with these kinds of questions. But I, I've said I don't think that that's going to change anytime soon. And here's, here's the reason why. I think that we've been naive. I started to say that, and then I went on my typical detours. Um, the reason that we can't change people's attitudes about sex is that the root issue is their thoughts about God. If you're thinking about God is wrong then what Christians believe and teach about sex doesn't make any sense. And so, actually, what's needed on this, once again, is evangelism. Telling people who God is. Here's what I mean. If you ask people about, if you ask common Americans, including people that go to church about their religious beliefs nowadays, what will they typically say? Well, the majority, more than half, will say, well, I'm, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. Well, when you say I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, that means a number of things. One, it means that you really don't, you don't have much regard for uh, institutions. You're not concerned about clergy. You're not concerned about creeds, that sort of thing. But additionally, a person that's spiritual but not religious, their focus is not on the God that's out there, outside of them. The focus is on the God that's in here which really becomes an extension of myself psychologically. So Christians, we also believe that Christ lives in our hearts. But if you read and th carefully what p folks say when they talk about being spiritual but not religious, really the God within becomes a help for my happiness and an extension of my psychological hope and well-being. And so also... While they don't believe in the God that, or don't talk about at least the God that's out there as much as the God that's in here. Additionally, the focus is not on morality that exists outside me that I'm accountable to, but the focus is on my personal values. And I hear Christians talk about Christian values, and if it's somebody I know pretty well and can talk straight with, I say there's no such thing as a Christian value. Christians don't believe in personal values that are meaningful for me and not for somebody else. We believe in right and wrong. We believe in truth and error. We believe in moral absolutes. Values talk is relativizing talk. And so once people start talking about personal values, then, well, 
if you believe that sex is only for a man and a woman in, in marriage, I'm glad that works for you. It's not what works for me. And that's the way our culture thinks. And so you can't change people's values by starting out talking to them about values. Really what our culture needs to learn about is not these values that can be different from everybody for everybody, but they need to hear about who God is. And because God is not my psychological helper that maybe I even created, um, yeah. I, I read um, this past week about it. I, I don't listen to Christian radio. Um, I know you'll be shocked. Uh, I'll probably get thrown out for that. Um, but um, I, I learned that there's this this song uh, that's been the at the top of the Christian um, bestseller billboard chart for over a year now, for six like 62 weeks. And so I went and read the lyrics. And the, the idea basically is, and one of the commenters in the YouTube thread actually said this, um, I'm, I'm so glad it's not just that I believe in Jesus, but Jesus believes in me. Well, if Jesus just is your internal psychological approver, then the difficulty is that folks need a different understanding of who Jesus is. And so if we want to change people, they don't, they don't, I mean, they need to hear the law, what, you know, that we're all sinners before a holy God. But that, under, that, that means a different understanding of God. It means a different understanding of what morality is. And I think that we, um, in many ways, have failed to realize how truly lost our culture is, you know, the these ideas of Christian America, and we've all grown up with Christian values and, and all of that. Um, but we, we live in the midst of a lost culture that needs Christ. And, um, and many, many folks in churches that are believers need better teaching um, for some of the reasons that we've described. Yeah. <laughs> Very true, because there's a cultural Christianity that doesn't uh, really get into what the Christian faith is. Yeah. Well, let's pray, and, and we will return to this passage, but it's been good discussion. Thank you for all the comments. Father, we thank you that we've, um, that we've studied this, and, and we pray that, um, that you would help us not to be self-satisfied as we uh, think about this, because... Um, as I was closing up, I was realizing that we also need to uh, to think about these sins, um, danger within the church itself. So we pray that you'll help us to return to this um, in a couple of weeks. Thank you for your love. Thank you that um, even where we have uh, failed uh, to live up to uh, what we believe, that you are a, that you are forgiving, that you are merciful and that you have redeemed us uh, by your blood. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.